Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, so we're going to be in, we're going to get two chapters done tonight, 1 Kings 21 and 1 Kings 22. The context is that Ahab has been failing to acknowledge God step by step, and we've seen a number of occasions. Actually, for a sinful king or a, a king that has failed Israel, we actually have a considerable amount of chapters dedicated to Ahab. Uh, and it's for our learning. It's so we can see what unwise leadership looks like, what weak leadership looks like. Um, and we, we ended the chapter 20 with Ahab elevating the enemy of God's people, Ben-Hadad, and welcoming him in as a brother. And part of the, the Ben-Hadad is kind of begging for his life. He promises a bunch of things to northern Israel, and Ahab accepts it as truth. We're going to see in the next two chapters that the king was lying through his teeth, and he, he doesn't honor his promises to Ahab. Uh, and Ahab continues to learn these lessons. God continues to give grace to Ahab, even though he doesn't deserve it. And then in the next two chapters, it's going to come to pass that Ahab crosses a line and God is okay to let Ahab meet his doom and, and no longer be the king of Israel. So we'll start in 1 Kings chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, the king of, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So notice that, that Ahab is the king of Samaria, which is where the palace is, but he has another home next to another palace in Jezreel, which is some distance away. In other words, Ahab has multiple palaces. This is like his summer home. So Ahab, verse 2, spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near next to my house, for I will give, it to you. I will give you the vineyard better than it. Uh, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money, which is a pretty fair offer. I'll give you money for your vineyard or I'll give you another vineyard for it, but I want the one next to my palace. Uh, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went in his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreel had spoken to him, had spoken to him. for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned his face away and he wouldn't eat no food. So, you know, we meet Ahab in this chapter and he's having a pity party. Honestly, he's acting like a five-year-old. He doesn't get what he wants, so he goes and he pouts. And the thing on this is in the ancient world, when a king wanted something, for the most part, they just took it. And if someone said no to the king of a nation, you just got killed. Uh, there was a very kind of brutal uh, world that we live in, this, the Iron Age. And uh, people would die for saying things like no to a king. So Naboth knows this. And when Naboth says no to Ahab, he's saying no to somebody who he knows holds his life in his hands. The reason he gives is really important. Verse 4, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, Naboth is responding to a demand from the government by saying, the Bible tells me this. Because he's citing the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord specifically is Leviticus 25, 23, there's actually three or four different passages that say the same thing here. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. 
for you are strangers and sojourners with me. When God gave the Israelites the Holy Land, he gave it to them on loan, that it's his territory and he's allocating it. And so as he distributed the land of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were not to give it up. In fact, they had instituted jubilee so that when loan, uh, land was loaned out, it would be reinstated to the correct family at that time. So as Ahab is told no, he's told no with God's law. So he's, he wants power, he wants authority over the people in his country, and here he's run into one of these people in Israel that haven't bent a knee to Baal. He still adheres to God's law. And for Naboth, this is a good thing. He holds to the kings, he holds to the rule of law, and he is going to be, uh, he's going to be treated entirely unjustly as the story goes on. The story is not about Naboth, it's about Ahab. And Ahab's going to do something really horrible here. So Ahab went into his house and he was sullen and displeased. We ended the last chapter this way too that despite getting victories given to the northern kingdom by God, Ahab can't enjoy those victories because he's upset about how they happened. Instead of being blessed that he sees fire on top of Mount Carmel as Elijah challenges 400 priests, he's upset that, that it didn't go the way he wanted it to. And then he had to go back and tell Jezebel that all her favorite priests were dead. So he's angry and there's a, the word sullen and displeased here connote an angriness and a bitterness that he has. He just keeps running into these people who puts God's law above his rule. And it bothers them. And this is how evil operates. Evil operates with abandon until it bumps into somebody that has a moral code that goes beyond the relationship with that person. I won't do this because God told me not to. And really that is part of the spiritual battle that all Christians fight is that there are people that want things from us that we can't give them because they're not ours to give, just like Naboth. Ahab has everything that a king could want, multiple palaces, but he has no joy and no contentment. That's the problem of evil. Yet you have Naboth, who has what God has allocated to him, and he, it's sufficient for him, and he's not willing to sell it because it's not his to sell. So the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken, actually had spoken there, is, is the word again. In other words, it's the Hebrew word debar at the beginning of the passage and debar at the end of the phrase. Debar, which Naboth the Jezreelite, debar. And, and, and there's an emphasis here that the word is spoken, the word as spoken through Naboth. He governs 10 twelfths of Israel, Ahab does, but he's pouting over a single vegetable garden, single vineyard. And that's what God says no to. And it, again, we, we see a spiritual connection here as we do through most of the Old Testament. It's amazing how we can have everything we need in life, but sin puts our eyes on that one thing we can't have. In fact, a lot of sin is simply an excess of something that God's created that's good. And that what we, we want more of it than what's healthier needed for our life and for our happiness. And that becomes then a sin. It's overconsumption of something or consumption of something outside the boundaries that God has set. And so when we look at this situation with Naboth and Ahab, we really have Ahab having everything, but spiritually he has nothing. Naboth has very little, but spiritually he has the high ground. Then Je Jezebel shows up, verse 5. But Jezebel's wife came in and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? Again, he's just pouting. Have you ever seen a five-year-old that get mad and they won't eat, they refuse to eat? This is Ahab. 
And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and he, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. So he says from his side of the story, he tells it accurately. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. For Naboth's side of the story, he fudges the truth a little bit here, right? This isn't what Naboth said. Naboth basically said, I won't give you my inheritance. He references the word of God. But when Ahab translates this to Jezebel, he tells the story so that it makes him look totally reasonable and it makes Naboth look totally foolish. Verse 7, then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you, know, you now exercise authority over all Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Again, this is what evil does. I want this one thing that I shouldn't have. And then you get evil friends or an evil wife that says, well, I'll get that for you. I'll give you what God has said no to. And so Ahab is willing to accept this. And he sets Jezebel loose, who is not going to do him any services with how she conducts herself. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent letters to the elders of the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You've blasphemed God the king, and then take him out and stone him that he might die. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. The emphasis on Jezebel had sent them, she had sent them. It's very important for the story that Jezebel steps in and speaks for the king and takes the authority of the kingship and, and, and does it in such a way where she is uh, you know, really taking Ahab's power away from him. So verse 9, to proclaim a fast. Really, this sets up the situation. If there's a proclaimed fast, there must be a reason for the fast. You know, if you're seeking God's favor, and again, she's dealing with a part of the country that's still sticking to Yahweh, kind of, or at least Naboth does. So there, there's an assumption that there's a need to intervene or, or have something forgiven when you do this fast. So if there's a, there must be something bad afoot. This starts the conversations around town. Well, what's happened? What's gone wrong? It's a, spot, a false spiritual condition, and then we get a false application of that condition, claiming to be doing something that's holy. So Jezebel acts within the confines of a belief system that includes fasting, and she uses it against the people that believe it. Why the seed of high honor? Why put, why put Naboth on a pedestal just to tear him down? Because if you're holding this feast or you're holding this, this gathering to proclaim this, this fast that's going on, you put Naboth at position high honor. The natural gossip around that is, why did he get promoted? Why is he being elevated? What did he do? And jealousy starts to kick in. Why did Naboth get promoted and not me? So you start to get ready. You know, Kierkegaard calls this a leveling process. You get somebody that gets elevated too high above the rest of folks, and the rest of the folks just want to level them down to their level. You know, let's bring that person down a notch. Who do they think they are? So it says to seat him with two scoundrels. The idea here is, again, Jezebel's using a legal system God created that you can't make somebody guilty without two or more witnesses. 
So the fact that she uses two witnesses here is to falsely use God's system to bear false witness. But she's using God's system. She's doing it with underneath the law. She's harboring or nesting under the branches of a world that God has created, which has some semblance of order to it. So the country has gone in for Baal worship, but there's still these remnants of people that actually care about God's law. Um, then the accusation is a third way in which she does this. The accusation is that Naboth is going to blaspheme God. And clearly Naboth respects God's law because he wouldn't sell the land to Ahab. So it's a similar setup to Jesus. Jesus gets accused of things that he wasn't guilty of. The people couldn't find him guilty in any other way, so they actively seek out people that will lie to put them in a bad, and to actually kill him. So evil plots and makes plans, and ultimately they have to lie to unseat a godly man and take him down a notch. They set him up for gossip by elevating him. They set up the gossip by creating a, a perceived problem, right? A threat. If you're in this fast, then something must be wrong. So they create fabricated news, fabricated gossip, but a very real stoning of a godly man. And Naboth has done nothing wrong according to the story. So Jezebel does all of this. It's important to note this because we'll get back to this because Ahab's held responsible for all of this. And it's because he allowed Jezebel to use his name to go do things. Verse 12, they proclaimed a fast and they seated Naboth with high honor among the people. They do exactly what they're told. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him and said, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Notice they add the king here. This is, this is going to be important. Because if God has been blasphemed, then they lose the right to their land. If the king has been um, spoken poorly about or blasphemed, if that's even possible, then the king might have a claim to that land. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. I'm guessing there were people worshiping Baal in this town that were ready to kill Naboth, and they have been for a long time. The, the, the willingness to do this and to take down a godly man seems to be just ripe. And so this horrible situation happens. We get very little detail on it. But we have three kinds of ungodly leaders in this story. We have Ahab, who's an, a weak ungodly leader. We have Jezebel, who's a strong ungodly leader. And we have the elders that are obedient ungodly leaders. In other words, they're obeying a command they should never obey. The U.S. military, you, if you have a, 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 a command that's illegal that comes from a superior officer, you're actually obligated to disobey that command. So it's interesting in this situation how the elders are complicit in this. They're morally culpable in this because they're following orders that defy the, the word of God. Now this is important. Some of us work in workplaces, and especially over the last couple of years, we've been asked to do some things. And some of us have had deep moral conversations with ourselves and other believers about what we should comply with and what we shouldn't comply with. And the answer is, is it contradictory to God's word or not? And that's where this gets complex because, well, what does God say about this? And what does God say about that? And at the end of the day, you got to pray about it and use some discernment. But for Naboth, it was easy. The king wanted land that was, didn't belong to him through inheritance of the way God allocated the land. So the answer was a clear no. And I think sometimes God makes these things clear to us through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they're clear through the Word of God. 
Sometimes they're clear because you can trust the witness of, of godly people around you. But Naboth's standing all alone here. And he looks all alone as he gets stoned by his own town. 2 Kings chapter 9, we're going to see that there's more to this stoning and the sin. Uh, some of the people that came down with Ahab uh, to claim the land make note of the fact uh, that they witnessed all of this happen. So, surely I've seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. When this account is, is, is referred to later in Kings, they actually refer to the fact that they killed all Naboth's sons too. So this tragedy is destroying an entire household of one of God's people that had a land inheritance. They kill the whole family, all the inheritance. And part of why they kill the sons is because Ahab wants the vineyard. So you have to kill not just Naboth, but all of Naboth's sons, which are of his blood. If you want to kill Naboth's inheritance, you have to kill his whole family. And it came to pass, verse 15, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, of the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab got up, which implies he was not up. It implies he was laying down. He was still pouting, right? It implies just this pettiness. He got up because his wife told him somebody had died. Think of this, all this over a vegetable garden. And went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Ahab adds to the evil here. He's not just killing Naboth. He's now claiming land that's not his. This is thievery. He does it through false witness, a third commandment. And he's coveting somebody else's things. There's another commandment. So the way in which Ahab's doing this, it, it, you know, just claiming a vegetable garden as a king seems like kind of a small story but the murder and the, the deviousness and the evil that's part of this it speaks to the character of Ahab and why from God's perspective he needs to go he cannot he can no longer lead God's people because he's attacking God's people and has been for some time so this seems to be a last straw situation for God which he's setting up the next chapter so he goes down to take possession of the land. Any direction from, 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 from you know, Samaria or Jerusalem, the capital, is to go down. So there's this idea that he's coming out of a high place and going to a low place. Um, the crime then uh, is really the crime of Naboth from Ahab's perspective is he didn't obey the king. And the crime from God's perspective is murder and that Naboth was not obligated to obey Ahab. Ahab was breaking the law with the request. So there's an immediacy to it. The, the idea that Ahab got up, that word implies that he shot up. He enthusiastically got up. He was waiting for this news, and he leaps at the chance to take it. So there's something upside down about Ahab. He may, and he pr makes a major procession. They all go down. He gathers people. Uh, we're going to find in, in 2 Kings 9 that Jehu is the person uh, giving the account and he remembers when they were riding down to take this thing. So this is kind of a big event at court, is that we have this new vineyard that's going to be under the king's control. So Ahab's going down thinking he's getting away with it. But God's going to make sure that Elijah's there to welcome him when he arrives. Verse 17, 
Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. From God's perspective, Naboth still owns that vineyard, where he's gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have murdered and also taken, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Let me say this. No godly person wants to rebuke somebody for their sin. So if you got a brother or sister in Christ that comes up to you and says, hey, I got to talk to you. I got I to talk to you about something. You're doing something that's hurting people. You're doing something that's not glorifying God. I got to call out your sin on something because God tells us to do one thing. You're doing another. If anyone ever approaches you like that and they're a person of God, and they're a person of integrity, you should listen to what they say. Because I don't think, and this is, I think this is one of the things about Christian leadership. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I really want to go tell Ahab that he's going to have his blood licked up by dogs. Nobody, think, nobody delights in the rebuke. And in the, in the Christian world, I think sometimes we, we think, well, that person's just a control freak or they're legalistic. Really, I, I give a lot of leaders credit. Most leaders don't want to have to address things with people. Honestly, it's just not, it's exhausting. And, and for Elijah, you know, he's, he's got his disciple Elisha with him now. He's already likely anointed the king, new king of the northern kingdom. He's already anointed the new king of Syria. These are the things God had told him to do that we left him with. So he, he, he gets up and he has to... Uh, do this job that's probably really distasteful to him. But Elijah does it. He's obedient. He does what he needs to do. And I think this is also part of people of God. They say the tough things. And sometimes there's tough things that need to be said. And Elijah's willing to do it. And it's why God can use him. Because if, if, if Ahab's going to get another chance, he has to know that what he did wasn't hidden. It was seen. And everything we do, every sin we commit, God sees it. And we think we can disguise ourselves. We're going to see that in Ahab here in a little bit. Moving on, few people on earth, few people on earth have the courage to tell somebody that they're doing something that, that, that doesn't make glorify God. It's hard to do. It's difficult to do. But when you have a friend that's able to be honest with you about that, that can call you out and do it in a loving, truthful way, hold on to that friend. Never let him go. Solomon said, there's one in a thousand people that are those kinds of people, those kinds of godly people that you can trust. Cling to those friends. Notice how Jezebel and the elders are not, yet, not part of this rebuke. Not yet, at least. God holds Ahab directly responsible for the sin, even though the elders carried it out and Jezebel commanded it. Why is Ahab held responsible? And the reason is, as king of North, the northern king of Israel, he's the head of the household. God's put him in charge. Even as a sinful man, he has moral duty to that family. This is the same thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, God went to Adam first and held him accountable. And God's going to address Jezebel here in, in, a, in a few verses. But it's interesting that, and, and again, I don't struggle with this. Some people do. God actually has an assumed authority structure for humanity. And people want to rebel against this, especially in our culture today. They don't agree with this. But God has, in fact, God holds the people accountable based on the responsibilities they've been given or the responsibilities God's given them. 
Ahab's the king of Israel. He's in charge of this. And even though people commit the sin that are other than him, he was responsible for their behavior because God put him in the responsibility role of the, the kingship of Israel. So he comes to Ahab with this sin, addresses the sin, and it's Ahab's desire and will, or even lack of will, that allows this to happen. It's his responsibility. At the end of days, each one of you are going to be held responsible for the things you do. And nothing you do is hidden. The only defense I have is to say, I'm going to fall on the throne of Jesus who died for my sins. I don't have a defense for my sins. I don't have the ability to pay the price that I owe on those sins. So I'm going to have to trust that when Jesus says, I've covered your sins with my blood, you're part of my family, I have to lean on that when I go before the judgment seat. Ahab isn't leaning on the blood of Jesus here. He's rejecting the law of God. He's rejecting the gift that God gave him. So he's got to, he's got to account for these things. So Elijah goes to Ahab. He doesn't go to Jezebel. He doesn't go to the elders. So when the elders think Ahab or any other leader is being, you know, uh, acting in such a way that outside their boundaries, well, they're held accountable for those things. Teachers are held more accountable in the church. The Bible says that if somebody teaches a false teaching to people, it's better than a millstone's tied around their neck and their throat in the water. Well, that's a horrible result, right? But God says, if you're going to dare to teach my word, you're held accountable for every word you say. More so, I think, you're held accountable for every teacher you listen to. And if people aren't truthfully presenting the word of God to you directly and simply so that you understand what the word says, you have to be really cautious about that because you're held accountable as to who you listen to and who you follow. These elders, they're going to be held accountable too by God. They listened to these, this, these letters from uh, Jezebel with Ahab's name on it. Verse 20, I'll get back on the text. So Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Look at how Ahab just assumes Elijah's his enemy. Is Elijah his enemy? No. Elijah's telling him the truth. He actually represents the mercy of God in Ahab's life. Just instead of immediate destruction, Ahab's getting warnings. In fact, spiritually, Elijah's the best friend that Ahab has ever had. But because of the evil, he's twisted around to think, just because Elijah says things I don't like to hear, I'm going to call him my enemy. Ahab's taken to calling good evil and evil good. He's that twisted around. Have you found me, O oh my enemy? And he answered, I've found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Elijah immediately puts the attention back on God. It's not between me and you, buddy. It's between you and God. And I'm just here speaking for God because God told me to come talk to you. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. And this is God speaking. It's in quotes. This is what the Lord is saying through Elijah. Behold, I, the Lord, will bring calamity on you, Ahab, and I will take away your posterity, his kids. I'll cut them off from Ahab, every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. Not only in the idol worship, but in getting these elders to murder somebody, he's encouraged and made sin happen, and Ahab's responsible for it. Verse 21 has Elijah quoting what God says. Again, this is just this idea that Elijah's just a mouthpiece. 
And I think that, frankly, this is the most loving thing we can do. If we have to approach somebody and say, hey, shacking up with your boy or girlfriend, God says not to do that. We're really just the mouthpiece of God in that sense. In that sense, And we do it as lovingly as we, as we can. Uh, you know, in this sense, when, when, when Ahab starts off the conversation calling Elijah an enemy, Elijah not responding to that is actually pretty graceful. He doesn't get baited by Ahab. He just sticks to what God tells him to say. And the consequence here is no legacy, no dynasty. And then he gives two examples, Jeroboam and Baasha, both of which were responsible for idol worship. Um, well, Jeroboam responsible for twisting the plan that God had for, for Yahweh worship into something that was more convenient and more acceptable to the masses. Uh, and Jeroboam broke the rules around who could be a priest. He decided he, anybody that he thinks can be a priest can be a priest. Uh, so he rejects God's rule for priestdom and, and the people that are allowed to be priests. Um, and then there's this phrase at the end of verse 21, both bond and free. If God says they're going to kill off all my sons, my, my biological sons, one thing I could then do is take bond servants that would inherit my land. So when he says both bond and free, it's basically saying to Ahab, all of your biological sons, but also all your, your adopted sons, your bond servants that you've taken into your household. There'll be none of them left. So in verse 23, and concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke. The also spoke there is really could be read two ways. One way is that Elijah adds this on and communicates it to Ahab, but the also spoke implies that this was maybe written down with the records and the scribes at the temple, but it wasn't actually said to Ahab. But it's, it's key here, and the writer of Kings includes it because it's going to get fulfilled too. So when prophets would get a word from God, they'd immediately have those things scribed and written down in the temple. And then if they were carried out, then that would be a documentation that God had said something and communicated with humanity. And the Jews were very interested in this because they had the Red Sea parted. They had a fire and cloud leading them in the wilderness for 40 years. So as a culture, they were looking for God's next interaction with humanity. And as the prophets write these things down, they're documenting, and really that's what the Old Testament is. It's a documentation of the ways in which God has spoken to the humanity on earth. So this is an aside. It's, it's recorded. The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. We got this reference to the birds of the air. Uh, you know, I hear I think it's literally that just the birds are going to come eat. But the birds of the air that eat dead things would be vultures and hawks and predators, raptors. The kinds of birds that are not kosher and you can't eat them. And you can't eat them because they eat dead things. And they become an image. We just got done uh, this morning in Mark chapter 4. They become an image of Satan. Uh, and, and the birds of the air snatch the word of God and from what's going on. So in this sense, we, we, we get a, a way in which that image is built up in the Old Testament. This is not a good thing to have your body plucked by birds instead of being properly buried. Verse 25, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved abominably in the, in, in the following idols. According to all the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Summative, it's a historical note. Ahab owns his sin, and part of his sin 
is that his life was stirred to sin by his wife. He had a responsibility to be the head of the household. And just because your wife or, or even your husband is, is living in sin doesn't mean you have to go along with that. In fact, you have an obligation to, to pursue purity even if you have a spouse that's living in sin. Part of what God held Adam accountable in Genesis 3.17 is because he had heeded the voice of his wife. Part of the sin was listening to somebody that he shouldn't have been listening to. He should have been leading in those situations instead of falling into sin and being a follower. So I even think of this when you think of peer pressure at elementary school or middle school. Right? Just because somebody told you to do something doesn't mean you do it. My parents used to always say, if somebody tells you to jump off a bridge, are you going to do it? And I think the answer was no. You, do, you don't do those things. Get the reference to the Amorites here in verse 26. Remember the Amorites were associated with idol worship? They, were, they, they actually rejected God and attacked God's people. And this is part of what brought judgment on the Amorites. So if God's going to judge the Amorites for this behavior, isn't it just that he judges the northern kingdom for identical behavior? They are actively hurting the people of God. They're attacking God's people. And they're becoming the enemy. And instead of God defending the nor northern kingdom, he's going to lift his hand from the northern kingdom. He's going to, if they want evil, he's going to allow evil to thrive. Next, we see something new from Ahab. We see a little bit of remorse. And this can be a, a tricky passage because you think, well, he was sorry about what he did, so why, you know, why isn't he forgiven? And so, in verse 27, so it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about mourning. This is another version of him going to his bed to cry, right? He, and I think part of this is he was in his bed crying at the beginning of the chapter because he knew this was wrong. And he thinks he gets away with it, so he springs up and goes to take the land. But when Elijah's there and says this, he fully understands that the judgment, was, everything was seen by God and he's being judged. There's a part of Ahab that knows the truth. He just keeps rejecting it. And, and the other thing piece here too, and I, I think this helps us as believers, there's a difference between remorse being sorry for what you did, and repentance, actually changing your behavior. So remorse is in the right direction. And, and obviously in verse 28, like um, the Lord's going to reduce the curse on Ahab because of the remorse. So I think God's trying to show Ahab this remorse is good. You should feel bad for doing sin. If your heart's not so hard that you're past that point, Ahab at least knows that what he did was wrong, and, and he shows these signs of mourning. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking in terms of a five-year-old, when you catch five-year-olds doing something wrong, oftentimes the five-year-old starts crying because they got caught, not because they're sorry about what they did. When the real issue is what's going on in their heart. So as a parent, you got to make sure that remorse turns into repentance, and it follows through. Elijah reminds Ahab, God always catches sin. Even if he doesn't respond to it right away, it's been seen. And God remembers those things. He, he will make things right. The opportunity Ahab here is, is to repent. So even, again, he doesn't deserve this from God, but God keeps 
giving him chances. So verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, it's almost like Elijah was done pronouncing what he needed to to Ahab. And then Ahab starts to mourn and, and, Ahab, and then Elijah, the Lord speaks to Elijah again. He's like, oh, one more thing. Uh, so this is very responsive. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity, which was the, his death, in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring calamity on the house. Now, the calamity on the house is the house being ended, just like Jeroboam. There's nothing left. There's no dynasty. So this remorse that Ahab shows allows God, or God then says, because of the remorse, I'm gonna not, Ahab's not going to see his house destroyed. And that's actually quite a mercy. No father wants to see their sons killed. So this calamity of the house of Ahab being taken apart, God's going to grant Ahab's never going to have to see that. He's going to die before that. So knowing all of this, you would think Ahab would repent. He would tear down the high places. He would return the land to Yahweh worship. He would send people back to Jerusalem for their sacrifices and the feasts. But he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't repent, and nothing. he does nothing to substantiate the remorse. He's sorry for getting caught, but he doesn't reprimand Jezebel. He doesn't take away her royal seal to send letters in his name. He doesn't reprimand the elders or replace them. He doesn't do anything to correct what he did to Naboth. There's no record that he even gave back the field. So Ahab, though sorry for getting caught, doesn't do anything to change his course of direction or behavior. So God grants a delay knowing all of this, which is way more than Ahab deserves. Story keeps going in chapter 22. Now three years passed without war in Syria and Israel. That's good, a time of peace. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. King of Syria. Remember, the king of Syria was Ben-Hadad. He promised to give Israel cities back to Israel. But here we are, Ramoth and Gilead is one of the most strategic cities in, in Israel. It's an open pathway to attack either Judah or northern Israel. Either one. So it's a key strategic city that three years later has not been given back. In other words, Ben-Hadad lied to Ahab. And he hasn't followed through on his promise. Ahab called him a brother and brought him into his chariot. And God is you know, bringing judgment to Ahab because of those things and because of what he's done to Naboth. And he thinks his buddy is, is telling the truth, and, and he doesn't. Ahab makes the mistake of thinking the world has something to offer. And the world doesn't have anything to offer. Verse 4, so he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king, I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. It, I, I, at some level, we see evidence that in Israel of this day, there was an attempt here to maybe reunite Israel. So Jehoshaphat and Ahab actually marry two of their kids. So there is this sense of, I think, Jehoshaphat wanting to reunite the country. So he steps in and, and he starts to learn the character of Ahab pretty quick here. And Ahab... Uh, you know, meets up with this other king. It says they uh, they meet up on the threshing floor, um, and they and actually we'll get to that here. It, there is this idea here that you have two heads of state 
meeting to have a conversation. And Ahab invites Jehoshaphat to help him take this city back, a key strategic city which benefits both of them. Jehoshaphat's all in. Verse 5. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Now what we need to know about Jehoshaphat is for his own spiritual life, he actually followed Yahweh. He, he adhered to the law. And we're going to see that at the end of the chapter. Jehoshaphat had other issues. He wasn't a perfect king. But in this case, he, he looks to Ahab and he says, I'm not going to go to battle until we inquire of the Lord. Notice that he asks him to inquire of the capital L-O-R-D. That means whenever you see L-O-R-D in capitals, in all capital letters, what the scribe is doing is writing Y-H-W-H. can be pronounced Yahweh, Jehovah. We don't know how to pronounce it because the name of God was so holy that throughout the Old Testament, they don't even try to write it on paper. Just in the same way that we don't make an idol for Yahweh, we don't even try to use his name because it's not been given to us to use the name. This is really key because when you get to Matthew chapter 1 and the name of Messiah is announced, Yeshua, Jesus, it's a moment in Jewish history where we now know the name of God. The name of God incarnate is Jesus. But throughout the Old Testament, they don't even put, it's like a giant underlying space where it's like fill in the blank. So whenever you see the all capital lords, we're talking about a very specific Jehovah, God of the Old Testament, God of Genesis, God of Exodus, God of the law, God of the judges of Joshua, God of Israel, a very particular thing. When you see Lord with lowercase letters, it just means Lord. It could be any Lord. It could be a human who's a king of a, a lord of a city. But when you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, that's Yahweh. So Jehoshaphat is telling Ahab, I want to talk to Yahweh before I go to war. So let's have that, let's inquire of that. Let's talk to the prophets and have them give us a word. Now this is important because this is what Ahab hasn't done. And in fact, Ahab has been warned by Elijah. He's seen fire on the mountain. And again, Elijah versus 400 priests on that mountaintop. Ahab was there. He saw that. He's had two miraculous military victories that God gave to him, and he knows it. He has this situation with Naboth where Elijah comes and tells him, God sees everything you did. He's had those four interactions where he clearly knows that Yahweh is alive and well, and now he has a godly fellow king. And, and the, at this point, Ahab's not listening to the prophets of God. But here's a, a, an equal, a fellow king, saying, you should inquire of the prophets of God. And, and in some ways, Jehoshaphat is a fifth attempt by God to get Ahab to do things differently. You can lead by seeking out God's counsel. And Ahab's going to reject this. It's the final fall of Ahab. Clearly in Judah, they held to the law more. Clearly, Jehoshaphat adheres to the, the law of God. And Judah holds on longer than the northern kingdoms do because of their obedience to God's word and seeking it out. So here's an invitation, seek Yahweh. I love what Jehoshaphat does this because frankly, this is a great way to deal with non-Christian friends. You're in the middle of a decision and you say, hey, can we pray about this before we do it? Even to a non-Christian, what's the harm? If you don't believe in God, then let's pray about it and, and it's meaningless. Um, on the other hand, if there is a God, in the, like we should ask for God's support on this. So it's interesting how non-Christians respond to the, the, the request. Can we inquire of the Lord? Can we pray about this? 
And I honestly, it, it's fun because sometimes they'll get really hostile about that sort of thing, which is, makes no logical sense. It only makes spiritual sense. But logically, why would you be hostile to do something that you think doesn't matter? Um, but test it out. God says he'll measure back to you every time you use his word, right? Mark chapter 4. Test this out. Go to non-Christian believers when you're in a decision-making moment and say, let's pray about this. That's what Jehoshaphat does that. And he does it with a ball-worshiping Ahab, someone who's actually imprisoning the prophets of God. And you can think that Jehoshaphat at least knew that much about the northern kingdom. So verse 6, then they, and, and Jehoshaphat's got him because Ahab wants something from him, right? So it's a great position to be in. Think of Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. This is what Jehoshaphat's bringing before Ahab. Jehoshaphat's a powerful guy who, who lives according to God's word. So Ahab, maybe you should too. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and he said to them, Shall I go up against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Notice the word Lord in verse 6. Jehoshaphat notices the difference. They use a different word there. This is not Jehovah. This is just the Lord. So these are prophets. They call themselves prophets. I don't know that they're prophets of Baal because Elijah killed 400 of those. So it could be that those 400 people over three years instantly got replaced. Like this is a posh gig with the king. You know, it's a good thing to have. So, but they're not prophets of L-O-R-D. They're not prophets of Yahweh here and they're not appealing to Yahweh. So it's not about hearing from God for Ahab. It's about hearing what he wants to hear. And, and folks, this is a popular way to live out your Christian life too. Simply find teachers that will tell you what you want to hear. They're all over the internet. You can, you can find them in most major metro areas. Find people that teach their opinion and, and fill you with self-help strategies, but they never tell you what the Word of God says about your life. That's exactly what's happening with Ahab. He's surrounded himself by people that tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Jehoshaphat says in verse 7, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we might acquire of? And he uses Yahweh in that sentence. Isn't there somebody that we could talk to? And so the king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, there's still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire the Lord, but I hate him. So Ahab just, he hates people he knows are speaking for God because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. But Jehoshaphat said, don't say such things. Let not the king say such things. Jehoshaphat should see this as a red flag. At this point, Jehoshaphat should walk away from the situation. We're going to see as we get into Chronicles, this Jehoshaphat does break off his ties with the northern kingdom. He eventually sees enough of this and just won't have... God actually warns him and he, and he backs off from these relationships. But he sees the red flag. He recognizes the difference and he can see that Ahab's got some issues with Jehovah because he's calling the word of Jehovah evil and him good instead of calling himself evil and trying to be good. So in a sense... Ahab's seen everything. He's been there. He's seen the power of God more than most people that have ever walked the earth. But he can't recognize a friend from foe. He can't recognize good from evil. Ahab hates the messenger and ignores the message. He disrespects the prophet 
and has a harder time ignoring this godly king who has troops to offer. So to get what he wants, he brings out Micaiah. Verse 26, if you look down a little bit, he gets put back in jail, which means that he just got pulled out of jail. In other words, Ahab threw this guy in jail. So this is, I think this is a really interesting situation on how we work with aggressive governments and how this works. The truth is here, if you speak out against the government, you might end up in a jail cell. They have real power over humanity. The, 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 the spiritual truth here is God is still on his throne. And we might sit in jail cells around the world for our Christianity, but God ultimately reigns and rules over everything. And we're going to keep our freedom as we keep our souls, even sitting in a jail cell. Paul writes, he was content in all things while sitting in a jail cell. Here's the truth. You speak out against Ahab, you're going to find yourself dead or in a jail cell. Are you okay with that? Is it worth telling the truth? Where do you put your life? Jesus said, don't worry about um, those who can't touch your soul. They can only take away things of the flesh, but they can't take away your soul. Worry about the one who can take away your soul. Worry about the God who made you. Verse 9. And the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah the son of Imlah quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before him. This is an interesting little note of historicity. In ancient kingdoms, when two kings would meet, they wouldn't necessarily meet in one of the king's throne rooms, even if they were in their territory. So by meeting at the threshing floor, threshing floor was like a high concrete patio that would be outside where people could gather and meet, but it would be a place where you could set the, the two seats and have two equal kings, and the imagery would be of two equal kings meeting for a diplomatic conversation. So it's just an interesting thing they throw in there, which is true of that era. Verse 11, now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaiah, had made horns of iron for himself. He had a, a visual prop that he was bringing to the king. And he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And here, notice, Zedekiah takes it a step further than, than Ahab. He actually uses the name Yahweh. So he's speaking the name Yahweh, and he's speaking something that is not true. This makes him a false prophet. Now this is confounding because instead of justice being brought to the false prophet, uh, we have some other things going on here. But Zedekiah is telling Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. Go fight your battle. We need to understand some context here. Whether or not Israel should fight enemies of God, the Syrians, whether or not Israel has an obligation to take the territory God told them to take, they're actually following the Old Testament command to take the Holy Land. As they go attack Ramoth-Gilead, they're, they're reclaiming a city that God said they should have taken and they should have held it. So it's an interesting thing. They still inquire of the Lord, even though this isn't really a question of sin. Attacking and taking Ramoth-Gilead was promised by Ben-Hadid back in chapter 20. It was something God told them to do back in Joshua. And so... We know God's will on this is that Ramoth Gilead gets taken. But they still inquire of the Lord because they're ruling, or Jehoshaphat at least, 
is ruling as God told them to rule, which was to attack when he says to attack and not to it. They're still supposed to follow God's will as they do these things. So what this false prophet is saying isn't contrary to God's word at all. It's contrary in that he hasn't heard from God. He's heard from a spirit. We're going to see that in a few verses, but he hasn't heard from God. So he doesn't recognize the voice of God. And so this is a really interesting situation, but I just want to point out here that what Ahab is being lured into is not actually inherently a sin in the Old Testament. The sin is that Ahab doesn't listen to God's word and isn't able to discern what it is. But attacking Ramoth Gilead, it's not that God tempts him to do something that's against the Ten Commandments, right? So, or, 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 or deceives him into doing something like this. In fact, he's going to be told everything before the end. The horns of iron are interesting. Honestly, when somebody is teaching in the name of God and they need visual props to do it, that's a red flag. Why the visual props? Why can't your yes be yes and your no be no? But no, he's got to make a theatrical display about it. Horns are representative of power. And as we'll see from here to Revelation, throughout the book, of, throughout the Bible, that, that image of the horn is usually the image of a king, someone who has authority and who has power. Um, so the, the, the horns are representing both of the two kings. And he holds up these two horns and says, this unity of two kings is undefeatable. You will beat the Syrians. And all the prophets prophesied, so everybody agrees with them. Yeah, yeah, that's what's going to happen. 400 of them, they all agree. Does God call us to simply agree with everybody who says they're right? Or does God call us through the word to obey his word? This gets to be a question here. God never asks his people to look for popular opinion. Like Noah was not asked to, to ask around about what he should do. Gibeon was never asked. David, Moses, if they went and sought popular opinion about what to do and how to lead, they would have been lost and they would have never done what God asked them to do. They would have absolutely been lost in the weed. So this idea that all the prophets are agreeing is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Even though they're saying they're speaking for Yahweh, they're not speaking for the Yahweh. So the question was, well, how do we know the difference? Well, verse 13, then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him saying, Now listen, the words of the prophet are with one accord to encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. So the jailer is coming down to Micaiah. You know, when you're sitting in a jail cell, most people are thinking, how do I get out of here? And when they let you out and they say, all you got to do is just encourage a little bit, this probably could get Micaiah out of the jail cell. Like at least put himself back in good terms with Ahab. So it's likely what a lot of these prophets heard when they were coming before the king is whoever was bringing them in the door was saying something like verse 13. Just tell him what he wants to hear. What's the big deal? What's the problem? Why would you make a stink about it? It's such a little thing. And there's no sin here attacking Rehoboam. Gilead's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with what we're doing. The answer to this is verse 14. And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. You know what? I'm going to tell the king what the Lord tells me to tell the king. All right. Make your own grave. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? Very simple question. And he answered him, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it to the hand of the king. <laughs> I think it's interesting. He gives a really vague answer. And I don't blame him. 
if I can get out of this and not cause conflict and just get myself out of a jail cell, man, I can do this, but I'm not going to lie to do it. I'm not going to let lying words come from my lips if I can help it. And this is what Micaiah is doing. He's wisely phrasing this. He says, go and prosper. Do whatever you want to do. Go have fun, Ahab. For the Lord Yahweh will deliver it into the hand of the king. <laughs> it, which is Jehoshaphat in this case. It's not Ahab that's going to get out of this alive or even have the, it delivered. But the Lord's going to deliver Ramoth Gilead. It'll come back under Israeli possession and it'll come into the hand of the king. But there's no reference as to if it'll happen today, if it's going to happen with Ahab or Jehoshaphat. It could be any king that eventually takes this city back. That's God's will. God's will is that the city will be taken. So yeah, go, go and do what you're going to do. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking Micaiah thought he's in pretty good shape with that answer. Um, but notice that the king reacts in such a way to where Ahab can pick up what he's doing. And so there's a tone to what he says here. Like, Ahab, do whatever you're going to do. Um, so the king says to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord, Yahweh? Okay, Micaiah's like, you asked for it. And I'm sure Micaiah's like, Lord, I don't want to get into this with this guy, a lot like Elijah. But, it, it, but then Ahab pushes him on. It's like, all right, you pushed me. Now I'm going to really tell you what God told me. And then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. Now he's talking about what's going to happen at this battle. What's going to happen in this battle is there's going to be sheep without a shepherd. There's going to be no king. In other words, Ahab's going to die. Jehoshaphat's got to be kind of holding his throne arm rails a little tighter too. And the king of Israel turns to, says to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? You know, if Micaiah's of God, then he's calling God's word evil here, but he knows that Micaiah says things he doesn't want to hear. If you're going to say that what a person of God saying God's word to you, if you're going to say that they're evil, you're blaspheming God because you're calling the word of God evil. And that's what Ahab's doing. So now we add blasphemy here. And then Micaiah said, therefore, <laughs> okay, now you're really going to get it, Ahab. You want to keep pushing on this? I'm going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep revealing more of what God has to say. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I actually saw into the heavenly places, the spiritual world. And all the host of heaven standing by him. And on, the right, on his right hand and on his left, that, that implies that there is the host of heaven. You have people that are um, loyal and obedient to God, and you have people that have fallen and they're disobedient to God. And they're, the host of heaven is there, all of them, the left and the right. And God says, and the Lord says, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he might fall at Ramoth Gilead? Because God's judged Ahab. He's going to fall. How are we going to do this? So one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, and he said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? And he said, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. That would be Ahab's prophets, not God's prophet. All his prophets, all the prophets of Ahab. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look. The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. This is an interesting passage, and people struggle with this. 
This is a tough one. Micaiah explains how this happened. And remember, he's standing in a court right now outside. There's him saying one thing and explaining what just happened. And there's 400 priests of Ahab standing next to him. Ahab's been here before. Remember when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and there were 400 priests of Baal on the other side? This should ring a bell for Ahab. This should give him deja vu. I've been here before. I know what this looks like. And the 400 priests were wrong then, and the 400 priests are wrong now. And I don't think there's any coincidences about the numbers. Right? They were wrong then, they were wrong now. And he stands alone against the 400. And Ahab should wake up. You just, you just wish Ahab would repent here, and he would turn. Some people struggle with the idea that there are fallen angels. We call them demons. And that there are spiritual beings that have rebelled against God and decided to corrupt humanity because they hate humanity because they can't believe that God has given them the attention and honor and glory that he has. That he is seeking to test and try humanity to actually have authority over the angels. as we're going to see in the New Testament. And in this sense, I, I'm sure the fallen angels think we're more powerful than they are. We won't submit to their authority. In fact, we're going to wreck them and show to God how weak they really are. And this is the story of the book of Job. Job chapter 1, Revelation 12. We see fallen beings having access to God's presence, begging God to sift Job. and Because God's like, look at Job. He's a godly and a righteous man. There's one righteous man. This, this experiment of humanity is worth it because look at Job. I found a guy who just obeys and he loves the Lord and he obeys the law and he doesn't do it for all his wealth and money. And that's what the fallen angels say. He's just doing it for the wealth and money. Look at how successful you've made Job. You take all that away, he will hate you. He will turn on you. We guarantee it. And the entire book of Job, beautiful book, is this massive piece that demonstrates you can take everything away from a man of God and he's still a man of God. The last two chapters of Job are some of my favorites in the Bible that say, who do you think you are? Were you there the when line? I built the world? Were you there when I created this planet? Do you know what you're talking about? So people struggle with this passage, and it's interesting that this idea, that, and I'll, I'll read it again, verse 23, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. Now we can spin that as much as we want, but at the end of the day, the Lord declares disaster against Ahab. He's passed judgment. And he's allowing fallen angels, those capable of lying, and, and you shall not bear false witness. This is one of the Ten Commandments. But he agrees to let these spirits go out. And in that, isn't God responsible for this happening? So in having 400 false prophets lie to Ahab, and God is somehow culpable in that, isn't God participating in evil? When he does that? Now, theologically, you can wrap your mind in loops about this. And there's a few answers to it. There really are. And there's ways people do math. They write books about this. How can a good and holy God allow a lying spirit to go forth at his command? And so one of the, one of the ways to deal with this is, well, the Lord allows the spirits to do what they want to do, and he allows Ahab to do what he wants to do. And just like with Pharaoh in Egypt, who, where God hardens his heart, he hasn't really hardened Pharaoh's heart until the eighth plague, right? Until the very end. Pharaoh's got a hard heart and God just makes sure that judgment will come because he doesn't change his mind at the end. 
right? Because God's deemed that this leader needs to go down. Ahab has a higher responsibility as a king, and God's going to bring him down. Why doesn't God just zap him, right? If that's the case, then just deal with him. Boom, he's dead. And I think that comes out of mercy. God still wants Ahab to repent. He wants to give him one more chance. So he brings him this deja vu situation, and it, sh it should ring a bell in Ahab's head. But here he is again, sitting in the same spot. Another way to deal with this lying spirit is that ultimately, until the judgment, when these fallen angels are cast into the lake of fire and dealt with forever, God's actually letting that play out too in the spiritual realm. So we get many of these windows or, or little glimpses of the spiritual world that there's a battle going on between those obedient to God and those disobedient to God. And God actually allows this to happen because it creates a trial ground for humanity. We get to choose if we want to serve God, serve ourselves, or fall after uh, evil itself. And ultimately, God is higher than all of it, right? So theologically speaking, Satan doesn't even hold a candle to God. God created Satan. So he's so far superior to all of it that even though Satan thinks he's doing something to destroy God's plans, God's using evil for good. God can even make that come out according to his plan. Think of the cross. Satan thought he had won at the cross. But God actually uses that evil and makes it into one of the greatest gifts to humanity ever seen. Propitiation for sin. God allows the extent to which Satan can go and at, and at a point where it, he's had enough, he ends that. And he cuts it off. He measures it out. And one of the answers... People struggle, again, with this idea that God could even do this. And in some sense, Job wrestles with this question. And if this bothers you, you should read the book of Job carefully. Do it with commentary. Do it with understanding. But at the end of the book, God essentially says to Job, you don't understand me. And you're not, you're not God. And so to try to put a God in a box and make rules around what God can do and what God can't do is to minimize God into your vision of God. This is a tough thing to hear, but hear it. Don't do that to God. Let him be God. And in this situation, when the Almighty God is here to give Ahab one last chance, the idea of sin is something that we're responsible for. And sin is to miss the mark of what God has for our life. So when God uses a lying spirit or allows a lying spirit to go forth, he's not forcing any human to do anything they don't already want to do. These prophets already want to tickle Ahab's ear. Ahab already wants to hear that he should go to battle. But look at the mercy. He also sends Micaiah. So there's nothing. Ahab's not actually deceived by the deceiving spirits. He's actually told both sides of the story. And Micaiah in these verses actually reveals to him the entire narrative of what happened. God uses Micaiah to put the whole situation into the light. And Satan hates this because deception requires shadows. And God doesn't allow the shadow. He lets the spirits go forth and then he, and then he, he exposes their game to Ahab. Here's what just happened, Ahab. Here's why this is going on. You get to verse 24. And I think sometimes when evil is brought into the light, they don't have any response to it other than violence. And this is why Jesus died on a cross. Verse 24, now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, this is the ram worm props guy, the guy that made a big show. He went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek, and he said, which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? In other words, who do you think you are? You're telling me that, that I'm being lied to? 
And of course, in striking Micaiah, you get a strong image of what indignation really looks like. And this is sad. This is sad that people that claim the name of the Lord are even capable of this kind of thing. But it is this idea that when somebody is so deceived that they, they know God's word, that they can walk up to another believer and, and say, how dare you question me? How dare you question my integrity? How, how dare you embarrass me in front of the king? It's all about me, 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 me. And none of it's about the Almighty God. So even the language of Zedekiah condemns him, that he's more concerned about himself than he is about the Spirit of the Lord and what's true. And this is why he's deceived. And Micaiah said, indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber and hide. So he slaps Micaiah and Micaiah just keeps telling the word of God. Okay, and here's what's going to happen to you. You know, same thing you did with Ahab. The more you push this guy, the more he just splurts out God what's going to happen. And he just keeps prophesying. So the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, and Joaph, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and Feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. In other words, go back to jail. Go back to where you came from. Okay. The word affliction here means bare minimum, sparse. Basically starve this guy. Starve him and make him thirsty. Don't give him full meals. Give him half portions. But Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, because Ahab's like, until I, come, until I come back in peace, I want this guy in a jail cell. Micaiah says, if you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. I stand by what I said. You're not going to come back today, Ahab. God's going to get you. And he said, take heed, all you people. Then Micaiah turns to the crowd and says, you're all accountable, all of you. And listen to it. What a man of courage. Says truth despite the, despite the unpopularity of it. And he sticks to it. He's willing to go to jail for it. This is the kind of person God works through. But in doing this, Micaiah actually gives Ahab the truth. So now Ahab has a choice. The truth or what he's been told are lies. And he has to use discernment, but he fails in this. So one thought is, well, God does evil because he allows these lying spirits. On the other hand, well, God actually gave Ahab the full story. So in this sense, the lying spirits did what they were going to do. But God actually went, operates in truth. And he also sends Micaiah, his servant. Part of this is he wants Ahab to make a choice. I think God wants Ahab to make the right choice. So, and, and, and here's the other thing. I'm still okay with Job's argument, right? The end of Job. I'm still okay with the argument of God is God and I don't need to understand how he does things. I need to trust that he's good. And I need to trust that at the end of the day, he does these things for my benefit and your benefit. So God doesn't ask us to understand him ever. He does ask us to follow him. He does ask us to obey him. And we do it because we know at the end of the day, God is good. And we believe that. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. You put on your robes. So the king of Israel, you'd think Jehoshaphat would say, what, you want me to dress up as a king and you're not? Like knowing that this is a hazard? Uh, so the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Jehoshaphat is making the biggest mistake of his life. One can only wonder why they went forward with this. But here's the thing. Ahab dressing up in a costume means he actually believes Micaiah. He's just going to defy what Micaiah says about the battle. 
So his will is going to go forward, even though in his heart he knows this. And his thinking is, if I disguise myself, they won't come after me. So he thinks he can hide from God. And honestly, he's like the fig leaves with Adam and Eve back in Genesis. They made this mistake that you can somehow wear different clothing and God's going to be fooled by that. They really underestimate the power of God. They don't understand how powerful God is and how he operates. So they're in this valley. The valley in this part of the world is, is the valley that we call Megiddo today. It's the, the place where Revelation says uh, Armageddon will happen. This becomes a place of, of various significant battles in the Old Testament. The reason it's the place of this is it's a big, flat farmland. It's probably the only place in the region where chariots can go to battle. So if you're going to use your chariots in a battlefield, you use them at Megiddo. Uh, it, you have too much hill country. They just don't operate well in the hills. Uh, so that's where they're going to fight this battle. And Ahab gets disguised. You can picture whatever disguise you would like at this point. So perhaps he has a fake mustache. Perhaps he is dressed up in various Halloween costumes of your memory. Uh, either way, uh, probably the most biblical is that he dresses up as a foot soldier, a, a charioteer, uh, so that he doesn't stand out as a king. Um, the other thing that Megiddo is noted for is that it's the valley where that archaeology has shown has had a lot of Chemosh worship. Again, Chemosh worship was where you would take a baby you don't want and burn it on an altar. So it was the abortion religion, uh, and it was a center for child sacrifice, and Chemosh worshipers would use this small rise in the middle of the valley, and they would burn uh, uh, this idol until it glowed red, and, uh, and you could see the fire from all over the Megiddo Valley. It's a valley of fire. So it, it is a place where that sort of thing was uh, shown, known, and this is where all this happened. So verse 31, Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, Fight with no one great or small, but only with the king of Israel. So, so much for the humility of chapter 20, that Ahab and this guy are brothers. They're not brothers. Verse 31, he's targeting Ahab to kill him. In fact, saying nothing else matters in this battle, just kill Ahab. So it was, verse 32, when the captains in the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Therefore, they turned aside to fight against him. Everybody turns to kill Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat cries out. Now in Kings, the crying out here, just it, it could be like he's just giving a shout. But if we look at 2 Chronicles 18, 13, God actually hears a prayer in this shout and responds to the prayer and actually intervenes miraculously to save Jehoshaphat. This is part of the response of Jehoshaphat after this battle. Is he goes back to Judah and he destroys false worship and he, he starts to bring revival to the southern nation. Like he's convinced that God's alive and well and starts to act accordingly. So Jehoshaphat repents from the whole situation. Ahab does not. Either way, they hear this crying out or this prayer of Jehoshaphat. And isn't it sad that when Jehoshaphat prays out loud, they know it's not Ahab because they know Ahab doesn't pray to Jehovah. So, or supernaturally, God's put something in their spirits where they just recognize him, like the face of Ahab wasn't behind the helmet. So they see something. Verse 33, as it happened, when the captains and the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Well, that's not Ahab. And they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random. I like verse 34. A certain man just draws a bow at random. Some random guy takes some random bow 
and this is the strange soldier that doesn't know what direction to shoot uh, and just is randomly shooting arrows in random directions and strikes the king of Israel, Ahab, con costumed Ahab, strikes him between the joints of his armor. So he said the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle. I am wounded. He gets hit by an arrow in the joint of his armor. Random guy, random shot, perfect location. And this is how God operates. God often operates through what seem like random events in our lives. But when you look back on it and you think, that couldn't have been random. It's too perfect. I happened to run into somebody at the grocery store that I hadn't seen for 20 years on the very day that they just lost a good friend. And there I am saying hi to them and checking in on, on, and on their relationship with their good. And, and, and you have this opportunity to have a person of God in your life at exactly the right moment, exactly the right time. I love when God does these things. And he does them all the time. Those with eyes to see, let them see. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. A certain man with a random bow shot nails him right in the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. The only time Ahab ever turns around is when he's shot with a mortal wound. The battle increased that day. The king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died that evening. The blood ran out from the wound on the floor of the chariot and then as the sun was going down, a shout went out throughout the army saying, every man to his city, every man to his own country, just like Micaiah prophesied. All the sheep are going back home. They're going back to their own place. So the Syrians back down, of course, because they're being attacked. They're on the defensive. So when Israel backs out of the battle, the battle's over. Verse 37, so the king dies, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria. Dogs licked up the blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. So what's interesting here is Micaiah's warning to Ahab was that the dogs would lick up his blood, but also that there would be calamity. And at the end of the last chapter, it said the calamity would be delayed. But that doesn't mean that the, that the calamity was the death of Ahab's household, his legacy. But it doesn't mean that Ahab was going to be left on the throne for, for a long time. God still eliminates him here with this random bow shot. And, the, and his blood being licked up actually happens just like it's prophesied. But the calamity is going to happen at the particular location of that Naboth's field, right? Outside of Jezreel. It's not going to happen in Samaria, verse 37. It's not happening in the Megiddo Valley. There's a particular location where the calamity is going to happen. That's still to come. But the blood licking up Ahab's, or the dogs licking up Ahab's blood was part of that prophecy too. And that's going to happen because Ahab's blood goes with his body. Uh, we'll see later that his son is, fulfills the rest of the prophecy as he is uh, killed. Verse 39, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built, all the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his father, and then Ahaziah reigned in his place. Here's the sad thing about Ahab. It looks like in verse 39, he built cities. This ivory house would be like a wonder of the world kind of location. He did lots of things that made him worldly successful, but he didn't do the things that mattered spiritually. And this is the point of the book of Kings. It's the record of how they spiritually lost their way. And so Ahab may have been a good king in a worldly sense. He had armies, he had chariots, he built cities, but he didn't do what God had called him to do. He didn't keep his responsibility. 
So we can note here uh, that Jehoshaphat then returns from this battle. He sees this whole situation with Micaiah, the random bow shot. He goes home and he's a new guy. He is absolutely on fire for the Lord. Uh, he goes out again the, amongst the people of Beersheba and the mountains of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers, Second Chronicles 19.4. That's his reaction. Abs doesn't have a reaction because he's dead. Uh, the contrast of the two kings here is pretty significant. Their success is measured in their obedience to God. It's not measured by anything else. And in that sense, Ahab's a total failure. We flip back to Jehoshaphat, verse 41. Son of Asa has become king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, the king of Israel. <clears throat> Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king. And he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shili. And he walked all the days of his life all the, in all the ways of his father Asa, he did not turn aside from them doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So in his personal life, he lived for the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places. He, he, he let, even as king, he was supposed to deal with these things, but he let them happen. So he didn't deal with the things he should have dealt with. So he did, there's some good, there's some bad, and you get this kind of record of his kingship. Also, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. That is, I think, after that story, listed as a negative. Like, he shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have made peace with somebody who's not following the Lord. And then verse 45, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat that might, that, that he should, ah, blah, blah, that might, the might that he showed and how he made war, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The answer is yes, they are. We're going to read Chronicles soon. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on Jehoshaphat here in Kings, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Jehoshaphat. We're going to get to him when we get to Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 17. We're going to see a lot more there. He wasn't perfect, so if you're looking for Messiah, as the writer of Kings might be doing, he's not the Messiah. He's not better than David. Um, he's not sinless. He's not perfect. Uh, he's a king. He did good, but he's not, he's not who we're looking for. Verse 46 and the rest of the perverted persons, the word perverted there in the Hebrew is kadesh. It means a sodomite or a prostitute or someone who's sinning in a sexual way. So the, the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. And there was no king in Edom, only a deputy king. And Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold. But they never sailed for the ships were wrecked at Ezi and Geber. Uh, we get that story elsewhere. It's a, it's a longer story. Um, essentially, uh, Jehoshaphat is a young king in his 30s, and he makes mistakes, and he repents of them, and he changes. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But I think the point of the Edomite passage and, and the perverted persons is they're trying to give a sense of, spiritually speaking, the things he did and didn't do uh, based on what the God told him to do. So driving out the sexually perverted is something that, he was obligated to do as shepherd. Uh, there's a civic process there. And then, of course, this deal with the Edomites and, and working there shows that he was actually had governance over cities that were outside the Holy Land. And so those get retracted when a king shows up in Edom again. Verse 49, Then Ahaz, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. This is good. He doesn't make a deal. Uh, and, and we learn... 
that this partnership uh, wasn't going well. We see in Chronicles that initially he tried to work with Ahaziah, but he rent, repents because God tells him not to. Uh, so God's actually breaking the ties of the, the northern and southern kingdom and doing it very intentionally. Verse 50, Jehoshaphat rested with his father, was buried in the father, with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and then Jer Jeroham, his son, reigned in his place. So Jeroham was actually given to Ahab's daughter. That was the, the son that was married. Uh, we're going to see that Jeroham is going to follow in false worship. Uh, and, and two more generations of southern kingdom kings are going to go into idol worship. The marriage to Ahab's daughter was causing problems, therefore. And, and you could argue that Jeroham still has to lead his household, and he should reject that. But it's hard when you marry somebody that doesn't serve the same God that you do. Uh, it is hard to maintain with any kind of discipline your devotion to the king. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, reigned two years over Israel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and the way of his mother, and the way of his Jeroam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. And he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God to, of Israel to anger according to all that his father has done. We keep seeing this kind of mantra with each king, like summarizes their life. They either did evil or they did good. And at the end of the day, you get a, a king like Ahaziah. We'll pick up there on, uh, when we go into 2 Kings. We're going to pick right up there. Um, the problem here is he serves Baal. Um, he, he, and, and, and the reference to Jeroboam there, remember he revised Jewish law. It was still Yahweh worship, but it was a more convenient Yahweh worship. They could worship where they wanted, so they didn't follow God's law about the temple. They had whatever priests they wanted. They didn't follow God's law with priesthood. They could do it however they wanted with whatever sacrifice they wanted. They ignored God's laws of worship. So they, they do religion their own way and even think they can improve on God's way. And that's the problem with Samaria. It's why, it's why the Pharisees hate the Samaritans when we get to the New Testament. Uh, they do Baal worship and they worship Baal. Uh, power of uh, the God of you know this world, power, excess. Um, and they provoke the Lord to Israel, the Lord God of Israel to anger. So we end the first kings as a as a section of the Bible, we end this, we started with David. We we're on the mountain. And now we end with ball worship and God being pretty angry with northern Israel. So that's where we are at. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whisper. It just kind of fizzles. And we saw this with the judges. We had judges that were pretty solid at the beginning. And as you go through the book of Judges, they just kind of fizzle. And what happens as things fizzle is God's going to change the government structure. He's going to change the arrangement because he has mercy on the world. So as the judges fizzled out and now as the kings are fizzling out, God's going to respond to these situations because he's got a plan. His plan is that we exhaust every excuse that humans can figure this out and we rely totally on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus introduces a new kingdom that's not of earth gives us another option because it had been proven through the kings and through chronicles that the effort of human earthly kingship is not going to work. It's just going to fizzle out. It's going to eventually decay. So when Jesus creates a new kind of kingdom, it has a new kind of governance structure that has nothing to do with earthly kingdoms and nations. So this is all set up for Jesus and it's all part of the narrative. Do not be discouraged. God is still on his throne, even though there's a bad king sitting on the throne there's still Jesus sitting on his throne. 
And that is the context of what we're doing here in the Old Testament is an almighty God communicating with a not-so-mighty humanity. Uh, praise God for the love and the grace that he gives me. If he can give Ahab chance after chance, I'm so glad he can give me chance after chance. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your blessing. Lord, we thank you we can learn even from characters like Ahab. You learn what not to do. Lord, help us to be discerning. Lord, help us to seek out your word no matter what's popular. Help us to listen to the voice of God even when we don't want to hear it. Uh, help us to not fall under the illusion that we think we know how you operate and what you're doing. Let us not put you in a box. And Lord, when we think of the way in which you showed Ahab the truth, but you also allowed lies, it's like the choice we have to choose between the world or choose between you. And Lord, we've got an entire world of people, an entire culture of people that have rejected Jesus Christ, yet we're still supposed to listen to that still small voice. We're supposed to discern and follow Christ. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do it whether or not it's popular, whether or not it puts us in a jail cell, or help us to serve you because we love you. You're good and a merciful God. And we may not always understand that, but we know it's true. And we know that you're good, you're just, you're fair. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.